Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Social Psych of Prejudice. I'm Shayna, and this podcast is what I'm calling the meat and potatoes because it's the heavy and most highly regarded prejudice theories. First on the list, and arguably the most important ideology of prejudice, is stereotyping. Dr. Struckman Johnson once said the accurate nature of what we see is biased by stereotype, and this has always really resonated with me. As defined by psychologist Gordon Alport, a stereotype is a set of beliefs about the attributes of a group of people, or it is the shared belief or overgeneralization about characteristics of a group. We learn stereotypes from traditions, parents, media, peers, personal exposure, etc., etc. Learning social categorization and consequently the stereotypes is a natural cognitive process of simplifying information about key attributes of people, cultures, and environments. It's critical for learning, communication, and ultimately survival. So we do need them to some degree, but once they are established in our minds and are heavily regarded in society, stereotypes can be extremely difficult to change. There have been several reasons proposed as to why stereotypes are perpetuated in society. One reason is the kernel of truth argument. How many times have you interacted with someone and been like, yup, they are such a jock or such a nerd, or insert whatever social group they belong to here. Dr. Struckman Johnson discusses that we cling to stereotypes because they often actually do prove themselves to be true to a certain degree. For example, let's look at the stereotype that women are more emotional than men. Many people would say, yes, this is true. In fact, research shows that on a statistical bell curve, women actually are slightly more emotional. However, if we look at the bigger picture of that bell curve, women and men have an 80% overlap, meaning they are more the same than they are different in emotionality, but that trait is more associated with women, so it will likely continue to be seen that way in society. Another reason is this illusory correlation theory, or what I like to call tunnel vision. You recognize that obviously the stereotype definitions are based on the group that someone belongs to, which means that it's fair to say that stereotypes are most accurate if we're speaking about the most typical members of the group. Dr. Struckman Johnson discusses that in actuality, the most typical members are often the least memorable and less noticeable. And there's this thing that us humans do called illusory correlation, which is where when we see someone from a group exhibiting unusual behavior, we automatically link that behavior with their distinct social category. This is like the stereotype that cross-dressers are usually gay males, when actually, cross-dressing occurs in both sexes and in those of all sexual orientations. As health professionals, I'm sure you've heard of the dangers of tunnel vision in medicine, and the same concept should apply to our interactions outside of the workplace with others. Another important concept that Dr. Struckman Johnson explains in lecture is that the human brain desires streamlining of information so bad that it can and will selectively choose to hold on to information that confirms our stereotypes and disregard information that conflicts with it. Our brain is so good at this that it can get to a point where our memory is affected and we forget or even change the details of events so it matches how the stereotype should be. There was a study completed by Brewer et al. in 1981 where participants looked at a picture of a woman who was stereotypically consistent with what an older woman looks like. After seeing the picture, the participants were showed statements that were either consistent with the stereotype, like, she likes to knit, inconsistent statements like she is physically active or mixed content like she walks with a cane and runs her own business. 
Results of the study showed that participants were able to easily recall and process statements when they were consistent with the stereotype as compared to the other statements which weren't processed more slowly and harder to remember. Lastly, an important thing to remember about stereotypes is that they are more likely to be activated when people are under time pressure, fatigued, in really good or bad mood, or when they have power over others. A really good example of this is the Stanford Prison Experiment from 1971 conducted by Dr. Zimbardo. And if you haven't heard about this, I encourage you to read about it online or watch the movie because it's mind-blowing. But basically, Dr. Zimbardo conducted a study to figure out the psychological effects of imprisonment and effects of perceived power between prisoners and the officers. There were 24 male college students who were assigned randomly to either be a prison guard or a prisoner in this mock jail setting. A few dropped out within the first few days of the experiment, but what they saw with the remaining participants is that they adopted their stereotypic roles very quickly, especially the guards who were in a position of power. The prisoners were subject to harassment and punishment by the guards, and at one point the prisoners tried to rebel against them, which consequently led to them making the prisoners strip naked and restricting food from them. The guards began exhibiting extreme authoritarian behavior, and prisoners were subjected to a psychological torture that was so great that three prisoners had what was considered to be a mental breakdown, and a study that was supposed to be 14 days ended after only just six. It's actually a really sad deal, but it's a good example of how pressure, fatigue, positions of power can activate those stereotypes. So I just want you to put that into perspective of practicing for long, stressful hours and whatever career path you choose. Think about what this could mean for you as far as implicit bias could go and how it could affect your care. Where things start to get dicey with stereotypes is when they manifest in our expressions. The expression of stereotypes through our actions has important implications on our future patients. How many of you have heard of the self-fulfilling prophecy? This prophecy basically says that through our behavior and personalities, we can influence individuals to act in ways that confirm the expectation we have for them. Research supporting this self-fulfilling prophecy has been highly regarded in education as far as how teachers' expectations of students affects the students' success. But this prophecy is super relevant to the medical field too because we can change the course of our patients' successes as well. Consider holding the stereotype that those who are obese are lazy. Now think about trying to motivate your patients in order to alter their health habits while also labeling them as lazy by default. By the self-fulfilling prophecy, these patients will statistically do worse if our stereotypes become expressed in our words and actions. The expression of stereotypes through language and communication is also important to consider. In a study conducted by Snyder, Tank, and Beershed in 1977, males got acquainted over the phone with a female who they believed was either attractive or not based on a picture provided by researchers that was fake. Their phone convos were evaluated by raiders who were unaware of the attractiveness of the female and the quality of the male's interaction with them was determined. The males also had a chance to evaluate their conversation with females too. What they found was that male ratings of female partners were shaped by their stereotypic beliefs about attractiveness and unattractive people. If their partner was perceived to be attractive, the males perceived the women as more warm, outgoing, poised, and sociable than if the women were perceived to be unattractive. Raiders also saw that men displayed more social skills, humor, warmth, and interest in the attractive partners than with unattractive partners. The biggest takeaway from this study is that stereotype guides our perception and changes our behaviors towards others. 
We will 100% come back to this topic when we discuss how to effectively reduce prejudice, so keep this in the back of your mind. Next, we're going to move on to the social categorization theory or social cognition theory. This is an expansion of the stereotype approach to prejudice, which basically says that prejudice is an outcome of social cognition in which we automatically divide everyone into in-groups and out-groups. I like to think of this as the us-versus-them theory. According to Dr. Struckman-Johnson, there's an important cognitive mechanism by which this works. Our perception of similarity leads to attraction. We are naturally biased towards our kin and those assumed to be similar to ourselves and our in-group. The thing is, it's easy for us to see our group as differentiated, meaning we can easily see the difference in our mannerisms, our style, our facial patterns, and our interests. However, it's interesting that we see our outgroups as more homogenous. For example, have you ever caught yourself or heard someone say, they all look the same or they all talk the same? That's exactly what this cognitive mechanism does to our perception. Additionally, we are also so biased and our thought patterns are so rigid that positive information about an outgroup is often seen as the exception. An example of this is the smart jock or the attractive nerd. And then, of course, negative information about outgroups is then seen as the most relevant and is retained in our minds. An example of this would be every blonde's most favorite label, the dumb blonde. You can see how this theory works together with illusory correlation and the need for our brains to defend and maintain stereotypes. Next to discuss is the social learning theory, and this is the most accepted theory for explaining prejudice in all of social psychology. This theory is all about our exposure, and it really is kind of self-explanatory. It states that we are very much a product of our environment and we acquire our prejudice through modeling behavior and through reinforcement from our influencers. There are several different forms of exposure. Parents, peers, school, church, religion, media, etc., etc. According to Dr. Struckman-Johnson, there is a moderate relationship between prejudice levels of parents and their children, especially if the parents fall in that right-wing authoritarian profile. Peer influence only has a modest relationship in prejudice, and Dr. Struckman-Johnson brings up the interesting point that this suggests that prejudiced people and unprejudiced people can hang out and tolerate each other's opinions. School influences are your peers, your teachers, and other staff, but also school lessons, our textbooks, and school-centered experiences. Do you ever think about what you didn't read in history in grade school? There's a reason many people, and of course South Dakota as a state, celebrate Native American Day or Indigenous People Day over Columbus Day. And I can promise I didn't get those details in social studies. And then of course, there's the media. Oh my goodness, I don't even know where to start with the media, but you all know what it's like to be on Facebook nowadays, so I think you get how powerful media can be in forming and altering our perceptions. And this is for sure going to be a huge issue as our world becomes more wrapped in social media and technology. The final theory to discuss is why we engage in full-blown prejudice. This is called self-concept management. According to Blaine and McClure Brinchley, we engage in prejudice to maintain our self-esteem. I like to think of this as the bully theory because didn't all of our moms tell us that people only put other people down to make themselves feel better? We actively choose to compare ourselves with groups that are less successful so that we can boost our own social identity. We also passively associate with successful groups and separate ourselves from those who are less successful. In order to defend our self-concept and protect our self-esteem, 
We blame problems on less successful groups. Remember that scapegoat theory? There's a little bit of overlap here in that people may actually act out against unsuccessful groups if they feel threatened. Additionally, adhering to our beliefs of our own group provides us stability and reduces our anxiety. According to Greenberg et al., the realization that we are insignificant beings living in an unjust and chaotic world is terrorizing for us. And by defining social and cultural groups, we are able to manage anxiety associated with death and mortality by maintaining a system of worldviews or a hierarchy. Yet another theory hinting on survival purpose and prejudice. In conclusion, you can see that between all of these theories, there is a ton of overlap, and that's why the etiology of prejudice is best explained as a combination of several. I hope this helped to set a foundation for your journey on understanding your prejudices. Tune in next time to discuss some case studies. Thanks, guys.